Letter four of Clarissa, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Clarissa, volume four by Samuel Richardson. Letter four. Miss Clarissa Harlowe to Miss Howe, Friday, April twenty eighth. Mr. Lovelace is returned already. My brother's projects were his pretence. I could not but look upon this short absence as an evasion of his promise, especially as he had taken such precautions with the people below, and as he knew that I proposed to keep close within doors. I cannot bear to be dealt meanly with, and angrily insisted that he should directly set out for Berkshire, in order to engage his cousin as he had promised. "'Oh, my dearest life,' said he, "'why will you banish me from your presence? I cannot leave you for so long a time as you seem to expect I should. I have been hovering about town ever since I left you.' Edgware was the furthest place I went to, and there I was not able to stay two hours, for fear, at this crisis, anything should happen. Who can account for the workings of an apprehensive mind, when all that is dear and valuable to it is at stake? You may spare yourself the trouble of writing to any of your friends, till the solemnity has passed that shall entitle me to give weight to your application. When they know we are married, your brother's plots will be at an end, and your father and mother and uncles must be reconciled to you. Why, then, should you hesitate a moment to confirm my happiness? Why, once more, would you banish me from you? Why will you not give the man who has brought you into difficulties, and who so honourably wishes to extricate you from them, the happiness of doing so? He was silent. My voice failed to second the inclination I had to say something not wholly discouraging to a point so warmly pressed. I'll tell you, my angel, resumed he, what I propose to do, if you approve of it. I will instantly go out to view some of the handsome new squares or fine streets round them, and make a report to you of any suitable house I find to be let. I will take such a one as you shall choose, and set up an equipage befitting our condition. You shall direct the whole, and on some early day, either before or after we fix, it must be at your own choice, be pleased to make me the happiest of men, and then will everything be in a desirable train. You shall receive in your own house, if it can be so soon furnished as I wish, the compliments of all my relations. Charlotte shall visit you in the interim, and if it take up time you shall choose whom you will honour with your company, first, second, or third, in the summer months, and on your return you shall find all that was wanting in your new habitation supplied, and pleasures in a constant round shall attend us. Oh, my angel, take me to you, instead of banishing me from you, and make me yours for ever. You see, my dear, that here was no day pressed for, I was not uneasy about that, and the sooner recovered myself, as there was not. But, however, I gave him no reason to upbraid me, for refusing his offer of going in search of a house. He is accordingly gone out for this purpose, but I find that he intends to take up his lodging here to-night, and if to-night, no doubt on other nights, while he is in town. As the doors and windows of my apartment have good fastenings, as he has not in all this time given me cause for apprehension, as he has the pretence of my brother's schemes to plead, as the people below are very courteous and obliging, Miss Horton especially, who seems to have taken a great liking to me, and to be of a gentler temper and manners than Miss Martin, and as we are now in a tolerable way, I imagine it would look particular to them all, and bring me into a debate with a man who, let him be set upon what he will, has always a great deal to say for himself, if I were to insist upon his promise. On all these accounts, I think, I will take no notice of his lodging here, if he don't. Let me know, my dear, your thoughts of everything.' You may believe I gave him back his bank-note the moment I saw him. Friday evening. Mr. Lovelace has seen two or three houses, but none to his mind. But he has heard of one which looks promising, he says. 
and which he is to inquire about in the morning. Saturday morning. He has made his inquiries, and actually seen the house he was told of last night. The owner of it is a young widow lady, who is inconsolable for the death of her husband. Fredgeville, her name. It is furnished quite in taste, everything being new within these six months. He believes, if I like not the furniture, the use of it may be agreed for, with the house, for a time certain, but if I like it, he will endeavour to take the one, and purchase the other, directly. The lady sees nobody, nor are the best apartments above stairs to be viewed, till she is either absent or gone into the country, which she talks of doing in a fortnight or three weeks at furthest, and to live there retired. What Mr. Lovelace saw of the house, which were the saloon and two parlours, was perfectly elegant, and he was assured all is of a piece. The officers are also very convenient, coach-house and stables at hand. He shall be very impatient, he says, till I see the whole, nor will he, if he finds he can have it, look further till I have seen it, except anything else offered to my liking. The price he values not. He now does nothing but talk of the ceremony, but not indeed of the day. I don't want him to urge that, but I wonder he does not. He has just now received a letter from Lady Betty Lawrence, by a particular hand, the contents principally relating to an affair she has in Chancery, but in the postscript she is pleased to say very respectful things of me. They are all impatient, she says, for the happy day being over, which they flatter themselves will ensure his reformation. He hoped, he told me, that I would soon enable him to answer their wishes and his own. But, my dear, although the opportunity was so inviting, he urged not for the day, which is the more extraordinary, as he was so pressing for marriage before we came to town. He was very earnest with me to give him, and four of his friends, my company on Monday evening. At a little collation. Miss Martin and Miss Horton cannot, he says, be there, being engaged in a party of their own, with two daughters of Colonel Salcombe, and two nieces of Sir Anthony Holmes, upon an annual occasion. But Mrs. Sinclair will be present, and she gave him hope of the company of a young lady of very great fortune and merit, Miss Partington, an heiress to whom Colonel Sinclair, it seems, in his lifetime was guardian, and who therefore calls Mrs. Sinclair Mamma. I desired to be excused. He had laid me, I said, under a most disagreeable necessity of appearing as a married person, and I would see as few people as possible who were to think me so. He would not urge it, he said, if I were much averse, but they were his select friends, men of birth and fortune, who longed to see me. It was true, he added, that they, as well as his friend Dolman, believed we were married, but they thought him under the restrictions that he had mentioned to the people below. I might be assured, he told me, that his politeness before them should be carried into the highest degree of reverence. When he is set upon anything, there is no knowing, as I have said heretofore, what one can do. But I will not, if I can help it, be made a show of, especially to men of whose character and principles I have no good opinion. I am, my dearest friend, your ever-affectionate, Clarissa Harlow. Mr. Lovelace, in his next letter, gives an account of his quick return, of his reasons to the lady for it, of her displeasure upon it, and of her urging his absence from the safety she was in from the situation of the house, except she were to be traced out by his visits. I was confoundedly puzzled, says he, on this occasion, and on her insisting upon the execution of a too ready offer, which I made her to go down to Box, to bring up my cousin Charlotte to visit and attend her. I made miserable excuses, and fearing that they would be mortally resented, as her passion began to rise, upon my saying Charlotte was delicate, which she took strangely wrong, I was obliged to screen myself behind the most solemn and explicit declarations. He then repeats those declarations to the same effect with the account she gives of them. I began, says he, with an intention to keep my life of honour in view, in the declaration I made her. But, as it has been said of a certain orator in the House of Commons, 
who more than once, in a long speech, convinced himself as he went along, and concluded against the side he set out intending to favour. So I in earnest pressed without reserve for matrimony, in the progress of my harangue, which state I little thought of urging upon her with so much strength and explicitness. He then values himself upon the delay that his proposal of taking and furnishing a house must occasion. He wavers in his resolutions whether to act honourable or not by a merit so exalted. He values himself upon his own delicacy in expressing his indignation against her friends, for supposing what he pretends his heart rises against them for presuming to suppose. But have I not reason, says he, to be angry with her for not praising me for this my delicacy, when she is so ready to call me to account for the least failure in punctilio? However, I believe I can excuse her too, upon this generous consideration, for generous I am sure it is, because it is against myself, that her mind being the essence of delicacy, the least want of it shocks her, while the meeting with what is so very extraordinary to me is too familiar to her to obtain her notice as an extraordinary. He glories in the story of the house, and of the young widow possessor of it, Mrs. Fretchville, he calls her, and leaves it doubtful to Mr. Belford whether it be a real or a fictitious story. He mentions his different proposals in relation to the ceremony, which he so earnestly pressed for, and owns his artful intention in avoiding to name the day. And now, says he, I hope soon to have an opportunity to begin my operations, since all is halcyon and security. It is impossible to describe the dear creature's sweet and silent confusion when I touched upon the matrimonial topics. She may doubt, she may fear, the wise in all important cases will doubt and will fear, till they are sure. But her apparent willingness to think well of a spirit so inventive and so machinating is a happy prognostic for me. Oh, these reasoning ladies! How I love these reasoning ladies! Tis all over with them when once love has crept into their hearts, for then will they employ all their reasoning powers to excuse, rather than to blame the conduct of the doubted lover, let appearances against him be ever so strong. Mowbray, Belton, and Turville long to see my angel, and will be there. She has refused me, but must be present notwithstanding. So generous a spirit as mine is, cannot enjoy its happiness without communication. If I raise not your envy and admiration both at once, but half joy will be the joy of having such a charming fly entangled in my web. She therefore must comply, and thou must come, and then I will show thee the pride and glory of the Harlow family, my implacable enemies, and thou shalt join with me in my triumph over them all. I know not what may still be the perverse beauty's fate. I want thee, therefore, to see and admire her, while she is serene and full of hope, before her apprehensions are realised, if realised they are to be, and if evil apprehensions of me she really has, before her beamy eyes have lost their lustre, while yet her charming face is surrounded with all its virgin glories, and before the plough of disappointment has thrown up furrows of distress upon every lovely feature. If I can procure you this honour, you will be ready to laugh out, as I have often much ado to forbear, at the puritanical behaviour of the mother before this lady. Not an oath, not a curse, not the least free word escapes her lips. She minces in her gait, she prims up her horse-mouth. Her voice, which when she pleases is the voice of thunder, is sunk into an humble whine. Her stiff hams, that have not been bent to a civility for ten years past, are now limbered into curtsies three deep at every word. Her fat arms are crossed before her, and she can hardly be prevailed upon to sit in the presence of my goddess. I am drawing up instructions for you all to observe on Monday night. Saturday night. Most confoundedly alarmed. Lord, sir, what do you think? cried Dorcas. My lady is resolved to go to church to-morrow. I was at quadrille with the women below. To church, said I, and down I laid my cards. To church, repeated they, each looking upon the other. We had done playing for that night. 
Who could have dreamt of such a whim as this? Without notice, without questions, her clothes not come, no leave asked. Impossible she should think of being my wife. Besides, she don't consider, if she go to church, I must go too. Yet not to ask for my company. Her brother in Singleton ready to snap her up as far as she knows. Known by her clothes, her person, her features so distinguished. Not such another woman in England, to church of all places. Is the devil in the girl, said I, as soon as I could speak. Well, but to leave this subject till to-morrow morning, I will now give you the instructions I have drawn up for yours and your companion's behaviour on Monday night. Instructions to be observed by John Belford, Richard Mowbray, Thomas Belton, and James Turville, Esquires, of the body, to General Robert Lovelace, on their admission to the presence of his goddess. You must be sure to let it sink deep into your heavy heads that there is no such lady in the world as Miss Clarissa Harlowe and that she is neither more nor less than Mrs. Lovelace, though at present, to my shame be it spoken, a virgin. Be mindful also that your old mother's name, after that of her mother when a maid, is Sinclair, that her husband was a lieutenant-colonel, and all that you, Belford, know from honest Dolman's letter of her, that let your brethren know. Mowbray and Tourville, the two greatest blunderers of the four, I allow to be acquainted with the widow and nieces, from the knowledge they had of the colonel. They will not forbear familiarities of speech to the mother, as of longer acquaintance than a day, so I have suited their parts to their capacities. They may praise the widow and the colonel for people of great honour, but not too grossly, nor to labour the point so as to render themselves suspected. The mother will lead ye into her own and the colonel's praises, and Turville and Mowbray may be both her vouchers. I and you and Belton must be only hearsay confirmers. As poverty is generally susceptible, the widow must be got handsomely aforehand, and no doubt but she is the elegance of her house and furniture, and her readiness to discharge all demands upon her, which she does with ostentation enough, and which makes her neighbours, I suppose, like her the better, demonstrate this. She will propose to do handsome things by her two nieces. Sally is near marriage, with an eminent woollen-draper in the Strand, if ye have a mind to it, for there are five or six of them there. The nieces may be inquired after, since they will be absent, as persons respected by Mowbray and Turville, for their late worthy uncle's sake." Watch ye diligently every turn of my countenance, every motion of my eye. For in my eye, and in my countenance, will ye find a sovereign regulator. I need not bid you respect me mightily. Your allegiance obliges you to that. And who that sees me, respects me not. Priscilla Partington, for her look so innocent, and discretion so deep, yet seeming so softly, may be greatly relied upon. She will accompany the mother, gorgeously dressed, with all her Jew's extravagance flaming out upon her, and first induce, then countenance the lady. She has her cue, and I hope will make her acquaintance coveted by my charmer. Miss Partington's history is this. The daughter of Colonel Sinclair's brother-in-law, that brother-in-law may have been a turkey merchant, or any merchant, who died confoundedly rich. The Colonel, one of her guardians, collateral credit in that to the old one, when she always calls Mrs. Sinclair mamma, though not succeeding to the trust. She is just come to pass a day or two, and then to return, to her surviving guardians at Barnet. Miss Partington has suitors a little hundred. Her grandmother and alderman's dowager, having left her a great additional fortune, and is not trusted out of her guardian's house without an old governant, noted for discretion, except to her mamma Sinclair, with whom now and then she is permitted to be for a week together. Pris will mamma Mrs. Sinclair, and will undertake to court her guardian to let her pass a delightful week with her. Sir Edward Holden, he may as well be, if your shallow pates will not be clogged with too many circumstantials. Lady Holden, perhaps, will come with her, 
for she was delighted in her mamma sinclair's company and talks of her and her good management twenty times a day be it principally thy part jack who art a parading fellow and aimest of wisdom to keep thy brother varlets from blundering for as thou must have observed from what i have written we have the most watchful and most penetrating lady in the world to deal with a lady worth deceiving but whose eyes will piece to the bottom of your shallow souls the moment she hears you open do you therefore place thyself between mowbray and tourville their toes to be played upon and commanded by thine if they go wrong thy elbows to be the ministers of approbation as to your general behaviour no hypocrisy i hate it so does my charmer if i had studied for it i believe i could have been an hypocrite but my general character is so well known that i should have been suspected at once had i aimed at making myself too white but what necessity can there be for hypocrisy unless the generality of the sex were to refuse us for our immoralities the best of them love to have the credit for reforming us let the sweet souls try for it if they fail their intent was good that will be a consolation to them and as to us our work will be the easier our sins the fewer since they will draw themselves in with a very little of our help and we shall save a parcel of cursed falsehoods and appear to be what we are both to angels and men meantime their very grandmothers will acquit us and reproach them with their self-do self-have and as having erred against knowledge and ventured against manifest appearances what folly therefore for men of our character to be hypocrites be sure to instruct the rest and do thou thyself remember not to talk obscenely you know i never permitted any of you to talk obscenely time enough for that when ye grow old and can only talk besides you must consider priss's affected character my goddess's real one far from obscenity therefore do not so much as touch upon the double entendre what as i have often said cannot you touch a lady's heart without wounding her ear it is necessary that ye should appear worse men than myself you cannot help appearing so you'll say well then there will be the less restraint upon you the less restraint the less affectation and if belton begins his favourite subject in behalf of keeping it may make me take upon myself to oppose him but fear not i shall not give the argument all my force she must have some curiosity i think to see what sort of men my companions are she will not expect any of you to be saints are you not men born to considerable fortunes although ye are not all of you men of parts who is it in this mortal life that wealth does not mislead and as it gives people the power of being mischievous does it not require great virtue to forbear the use of that power is not the devil said to be the god of this world are we not children of this world well then let me tell thee my opinion it is this that were it not for the poor and the middling the world would probably long ago have been destroyed by fire from heaven ungrateful wretch as the rest thou wilt be apt to say to make such sorry returns as they generally do make to the poor and the middling the dear lady is prodigiously learned in theories but as to practices as to experimentals must be as you know from her tender years a mere novice till she knew me i dare say she did not believe whatever she had read that there were such fellows in the world as she will see in you for i shall have much pleasure in observing how she'll stare at her company when she finds me the politest man of the five and so much for instructions general and particular for your behaviour on monday night and let me add that you must attend to every minute circumstance whether you think there be reason for it or not deep like golden ore frequently lies my meaning and richly worth digging for the hint of least moment as you may imagine it is often pregnant with events of the greatest be implicit am i not your general did i ever lead you on that i brought you not off with safety and success 
sometimes to your own stupid astonishment. And now, methinks, thou art curious to know, what can be my view in risking the displeasure of my fair one, and alarming her fears, after four or five halcyon days have gone over our heads? I'll satisfy thee. The visitors of the two nieces will crowd the house. Beds will be scarce. Miss Partington, a sweet, modest, genteel girl, will be prodigiously taken with my charmer, will want to begin a friendship with her. A share in her bed, for one night only, will be requested. Who knows, but on that very Monday night I may be so unhappy as to give mortal offence to my beloved. The shyest birds may be caught napping. Should she attempt to fly me upon it, cannot I detain her? Should she actually fly, cannot I bring her back, by authority civil or uncivil? if I have evidence upon evidence that she acknowledged, though but tacitly, her marriage? And should I, or should I not succeed, and she forgive me? Or if she but descend to expostulate? Or if she bear me in her sight? Then will she be all my own. All delicacy is my charmer. I long to see how such a delicacy on any of these occasions will behave, and in my situation it behoves me to provide against every accident. I must take care, knowing what an eel I have to do with, that the little wriggling rogue does not slip through my fingers. How silly should I look staring after her, when she had shot from me into the muddy river, her family, from which with so much difficulty I have taken her. Well then, here are, let me see, how many persons are there who, after Monday night, will be able to swear that she has gone by my name, answered to my name, had no other view in leaving her friends but to go by my name, her own relations neither able nor willing to deny it. First, here are my servants, her servant Dorcas, Mrs. Sinclair, Mrs. Sinclair's two nieces, and Miss Partington, but for fear these evidences should be suspected, here comes the jet of the business. No less than four worthy gentlemen of fortune and family, who were all in company such a night particularly, at a collation to which they were invited by Robert Lovelace of Sandon Hall in the county of Lancaster, Esquire, in company with Maudlin Sinclair, widow, and Priscilla Partington, spinster, and the lady complainant, when the said Robert Lovelace addressed himself to the said lady on a multitude of occasions as his wife, as they and others did, as Mrs. Lovelace every one complimenting and congratulating her upon her nuptials, and that she received such their compliments and congratulations, with no other visible displeasure or repugnance than such as a young bride, full of blushes and pretty confusion, might be supposed to express upon such contemplative revolvings as those compliments would naturally inspire. Nor do thou rave at me, Jack, nor rebel. Dost think I brought the dear creature hither for nothing? And here is a faint sketch of my plot. Stand by, varlets! Tanta rarara! Veil your bonnets and confess your master. End of letter four.